um, because we realize that um, the laws that affect us the most in cannabis are the ones that are local. Um, and we have to be down there at city council meetings, at cannabis regulatory meetings, um, having these conversations and also continuing to have these conversations because what we know for sure is that, you know, uh, none of these programs are perfect when we're talking about social equity. If you got one spark up, you listen to the Higher Learning Podcast with 420 NJ Events. Let's go! Happy 420, everybody. Welcome to the Higher Learning with 420 NJ Events Podcast. I am your host, Brendan Robinson. Here, my brother, my co-host, my dog, Stan O'Coral. Stan, what's up, baby? Come on, brother. Chilling, man. Chilling. Um, listen, y'all, we got a special, special guest on the show tonight. Some royalty on the show. A on, black man. queen in this industry. Come a on, social man. equity advocate. Former entertainment executive, okay? VP of Supernova Women, an entrepreneur. I'm talking about the founder and CEO of Apothecary Brands, Miss Whitney Beatty. Whitney, what's up? Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, man, so much we want to get into with you today. But before we jump into the, the, the unbelievable story, just kind of give us a little background on who you are and kind of how you got started in this industry. Ooh, all right. So um, let's see. I am Whitney Beatty. I'm CEO of Apothecary Brands. Apothecary is a sleek and sexy storage and humidity solution for cannabis connoisseurs. So we say people keep their wine in a wine fridge, liquor in a bar, cigars in a humidor. So why do you keep your high-end cannabis in a shoebox under your bed? That does not make sense to me. So we make beautiful locking storage cases for cannabis um, and have done so since 2015. Um, I also am CEO of Josephine and Billy's. Josephine and Billy's will be the first dispensary in the country that's focused on women of color. We are I'm a phase three round one social equity applicant in Los Angeles, and we plan to open in September. I'm also uh, vice president of Supernova Women. Supernova is a 501c3 that seeks to encourage women of color to become stakeholders in the cannabis space. And we do sort of, uh, that through advocacy, through education, and through networking. Um, and we've been around also since uh, 2015 doing the good work. And I'm also vice president of Sarah, which is the Cannabis Equity Retailers Association in Los Angeles, we uh, seek to advocate and encourage the 200 people who have been um, accepted as social equity applicants um, for retail in Los Angeles and do group advocacy efforts um, uh, in order to, to help us all succeed. Wow, listen, when do you sleep, sister? <laughs> don't, I don't. You see, you hear it? <laughs> That is utterly amazing all the things you're doing. But before we get there, I know your background is entertainment industry, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. just talk to us a little bit about that transition going from the entertainment industry to now cannabis. So it was interesting. And um, to, to back it up, my background, um, you know, I didn't grow up using cannabis. I didn't use cannabis in high school. I probably tried it twice in college. Um, I have anxiety, so it really was not for me at that time. What ended up happening was I was working in the entertainment industry and I've got, I got an uh, undergrad in theater and a master's degree in film production. And so I was in entertainment for um, 17 years um, working um, in the reality television development space. Um, and, you know, entertainment industry is stressful AF. Uh, we're working hard, we're working long hours or whatever. And I had a situation when I was, you know, putting in 18 hour days where my heart started palpitating. I was sweating. I had chest pains. I thought I was dying. I thought I was having a heart attack. And though production was so important to me that I was like, ooh, don't want to don't want to stress nobody out. I literally got into my car, drove to the emergency room and parked my car in front of where the ambulances go and left it there. Because I'm like, if I'm going to die, you know what I don't care about? This Mustang. 
So <laughs> like left it there, went inside and was like, I'm dying. They rushed me back to get the EKG. Um, and they're like, hey, you're not dying. You're having an anxiety attack. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. Cause I'm a type pers- hey, personality, but we don't do that. And they're like, ah, check yourself. <laughs> like, like, um, so that changed the game for me because I had to find out what was going to work to help control that anxiety. And I tried different drugs that they gave me. And finally, my doctor said in an offhand comment, like, hey, have you, um, have you looked into cannabis? And I was like, whoa, whoa there, shorty. Because for me at that time, she could have said, you know, have you looked into crack rock? Because that was what my knowledge base was. She was, I was like, oh, she's trying to put me on the drug drugs. Okay. But what that did was it made me do my research. Um, and so it made me do my research on the plant and how it could help me with my anxiety. But more so, why do I feel so negatively about it? Why do I have these bad feelings, you know, or feel like this is going to be bad or naughty? And um, it made me go all the way back to to the beginning, you know, learned about Harry Anslinger and the prohibition of cannabis and how he the, the, the racialization of that. I mean, the man actually said reefer make um, uh, darkies think that they're as good as white men. I mean, there's there's no questioning that the man was an extreme racist and and worked very hard to racialize the plant to to demonize the plant and we're talking about a plant that was used more uh frequently than tylenol prior to the 1920s so this was something they were giving to women during childbirth that they you know cannabis was on the list for everything um so how do you go about demonizing this for a whole country full of people um and i was just so interested in that and then also looking at the the role that we played in that in the media because when you look at cannabis on television you who do you see bad kids behind a gym you know stoners um who are ineffective and aren't doing much and that wasn't indicative of any of the people i saw in cannabis because the people i know who use cannabis are doctors our lawyers our pastors are you know are my next door neighbor our nannies our mothers all of these things and i was like well what can i do to change this perception because it doesn't make sense for people to miss out on plant medicine because of racist tropes that have not been, you know, uh, have not been brought to light. Um, and um, at the same time, I knew that I wanted um, a place to keep my cannabis. And so I started looking into it and I designed Apothecary. And once I started that company, I was like, okay, um, I can't be in this space and not advocate for my people to be within this space because communities of color have been disproportionately disenfranchised by war on drugs for years and we can't have a situation where jamal remains in jail and chad gets to open a dispensary on every corner that that can't be the case because our communities are still you know you know paying the price for that um and so you know so i took that uh to heart and i've been advocating and working in the space ever since Listen, excuse my friends. Talk your shit, sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that, that is so real though. Like that, that's big. It's painted on on our community. It's painted on the way we think from dare when we're kids to seeing the kids' heads explode because it's like it's so crazy. But listen, I will say I'm super happy you did your research because that brings me to my next point. Supernova women. Okay. Uh, we're talking about a group of black and brown sisters coming together in 2015 and just saying enough is enough. Okay, you all create this ecosystem to really just empower black and brown females in the cannabis industry. You're providing jobs, you're just doing amazing work. So just talk to us a little bit about how that mission came about and where it's going. So Supernova was formed by uh, three ladies back in 2015. They did 
you know, that came together um, as people who worked within this space and really wanted to see um, an, a community and opportunity for, for women of color. Um, and it's amazing, you know, we were one of the, the first organization um, for black women in the space and we still continue to do, you know, uh, this sort of work. And so some of the things that we've done, if you look in the advocacy um, space, Supernova was um, uh, integral in the establishment of the very first social equity program in Oakland, um, you know, uh, and then went to uh, lobby for that in San Francisco, went down and, you know, talked in um, uh, Los Angeles. Um, we have definitely pushed advocacy overall um, because we realized that um, the laws that affect us the most in cannabis are the ones that are local. Um, and we have to be down there at city council meetings, at cannabis regulatory meetings, um, having these conversations and also continuing to have these conversations because what we know for sure is that, you know, uh, none of these programs are perfect when we're talking about social equity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, they continually need to be revised and, and worked on. And it's, it's incredibly important that we're down there in continuous dialogue with us. And, and even in the conversation of what social equity is, because when we talk about social equity as a program in the cannabis space, we're usually talking about something that offers prioritization, uh, you know, on licensing. But what we've seen is, you know, we can't really say black and brown people. So generally, how do we, you know, determine those things? It becomes by zip code or, or something similar or what have you. Um, but let's talk about the real people that were damaged by the war on drugs. My grandmother doesn't want to have a dispensary. Mm -hmm. She don't want one. Mm -hmm. So how do we still make sure that the, the that equity is applied to communities that have been disproportionately disenfranchised? Where's the job placement? Where's the community redevelopment? What are the things that we're doing with those tax dollars that they are pounding into our heads to really make this community better, not just get prioritization on licensing? Um, so the other thing we do, we're heavy on education. Um, you know, we do host panel discussions, workshops online, in person um, to bring people together uh, to talk about the issues that affect cannabis uh, uh, entrepreneurs most. And it's important because our board is made up of women who are all stakeholders in this space, i.e. everyone has a business, which gives us a special view of what is necessary for people to be successful in this space. Um, and, you know, and we definitely prioritize what we're doing to those areas that that create barriers to entry for women and women of color. And so we're talking about things like uh, fundraising. Fundraising is a huge issue for women and women of color. Well, we know for sure, especially when we're talking about licensure, because we know that um, uh, black and brown businesses are about 4% of the businesses in the cannabis space. And we're talking about licensed businesses. And we're talking about about 1%. And why is because that financial heavy lift. And we can't go down to the SBA and get a loan. And we can't go down to uh, Bank of America and get a loan because it's still federally illegal. So we're stuck in a space where we need to raise money from investors and from VCs. Not to mention the fact that, you know, a, a lot of people don't have a lot of experience um, with all the fiduciary duties involved in raising money to begin with. But then you're talking about black and brown people don't have access to, um, you know, angel investors in their network. Black uh, and brown families have generally around $40,000 of net worth. They don't have that. So Sort of money. Um, people are always talking about how Jeff Bezos was a self-made man, you know, because his parents only gave him a three hundred thousand dollar loan. You know what I could do with a three hundred thousand dollar loan, boy? Bye. You're not self-made. <laughs> Come on. Come on so, you know, yeah. like let, let's get real right quick. Yeah. So then we're stuck with we don't have these people in our network, and these people tend to be white men 
you know, white men who are of a certain age. And they generally invest in people who remind them of themselves, you know, through bi bias, implicit or explicit. They don't see themselves as a single mother who's in their 40s, who's black. They don't see that. And so it becomes a harder sell for us to do that. And if we look at VCs, they've given 2% of their funding across all verticals to women. And we're talking about black women, that's 0.0006%. That's how much of VC funding we're getting. So we need to be able to have these conversations with women of color to make sure we always know that we need to come harder, be faster, um, have our stuff even more together than everyone else. But how do we get the, in front of the right people? How do we prepare them to grow their business? How do we prepare them to compete against white men who are raising on average $1.2 million when a black woman goes out to raise money for a company, they're generally raising 40,000. How do we compete in that market? And those are the things that we discuss and work on. And then we also have been building um, a number of landmark programs. Um, we're running the first social equity um, a kitchen in the country. It's an um, incubator that allows six companies um, in the manufacturing space to work together in a shared manufacturing kitchen and be able to uh, all be able to grow their businesses, amortize costs, um, and learn how to get their business from, from incubation onto shelves. And we're giving them help all along the way, um, all the way through distribution. We're also um, you know, we launched our workforce development program, which is also first in the nation, where we are placing people into, um, you know, to work in those businesses, giving them training um, in this highly regulated industry, giving them an opportunity to learn metric and everything else. Um, it is um, an amazing program where they're getting paid the whole way through uh, and we help them get job placement afterwards. These are the programs that we want, you know, that we want to see. And we said we want to be the change that we want to see. And so we're out there doing that on a daily basis. No, you I mean, you listen, you guys, you women absolutely are. Okay. And that, that, that's amazing. I, I love the fact that you, you mentioned education because that's one of the things that sparked us, even with the Minority Canvas Academy, is that if we get these dollars from social equity, right, what are we going to do with it? And you and exactly. I, you know, you and I talked offline about this. This needs to be abundant. This isn't welfare. You know what I'm saying? This is not welfare. Absolutely it is not. No, 100%. 100%. <laughs> So, you know, when, when I say all that to just say, you know, we're huge supporters of women in cannabis, especially minority women. Um, in fact, you know, 73% of our user base are women. So we're all- Yeah, I love that. No, for sure, for sure. You know, so we're always looking for ways to support the movement any way we can. I would just ask you, like, what's some of the best advice you've received being a woman in, in this space? Oh, that is a good question. Um, some of the best advice. Um, I would say, to not be afraid to take up space. You know, um, it, it's funny because when you when I'm working in this space and, and uh, there's so many opportunities or, or times that I walk and I'm the only black woman there. I'm the only uh, black person around the table. I'm the only person, um, you know, who looks like me um, in this situation. Um, and, you know, I sometimes I don't want to always be the person who's like, but what about us? But what about us? But what about us? And then I realized that that is the gift of me being in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And that is that is my duty for having that opportunity to be in those spaces. That even if it's going to annoy people, even if they don't want to hear about it, even if they don't find it important, my job is to be in those rooms so I can say, what about us? Mm -hmm. What about my people? What about uh, opportunities for, um, for, for equity? What about opportunities 
for inclusive supply chain? Why, why am I the only woman of color around this table? Why are we making large decisions without bringing in, um, you know, uh, groups uh, that have uh, better diversity profiles in order to make these decisions? Um, and getting comfortable in, you know, and always having to raise a fist. Sometimes it's hard to, to be in that position, but someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. Um, and so uh, it's just about, you know, being able to own that space because my job is to do that until I come into those rooms and I'm not the only woman around the, the table. I'm not the only brown person in that room, um, you know, that we see more diversity across the board. And until that, I'm going to have to continue to scream in the room. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, diversity is key, right? You know, um, when we talk about social equity here in Jersey, the first thing that comes to our mind is job placement and education for those minorities impacted by the world on drugs. And, you know, I just really feel like we on the East Coast can learn a lot from folks like yourself on the West Coast because you guys have been through it all already. And um, I would love to just hear a little bit about some of the initiatives you did in Oakland and in California in general and some of the things that worked and maybe some of the things that didn't work. I mean, so we're seeing, and it's it's interesting because I do, and we talked about this. I think it's incredibly important that that the lessons that we've learned out here get transferred to you guys out there um, to to give you guys the best positioning to not have to go through the bullshit that we've gone through, to not have to hit the roadblocks that we've gone through, and we've seen it all over. I mean, we've got. Um, you know, uh, Los Angeles is a great example. Um, you know, our program has seen a lot of delays. Um, we've seen issues, um, you know, in the way that our social equity was set up. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, in order to apply for social equity, um, you had to have a couple of things. You had to live in a certain zip code. You had to have a certain amount of money um, that you made in, in the years that they were looking at. And then they wanted, um, uh, and or you could have had a previous cannabis conviction. Um, and what we learned is when we said, and, and we do, and it's done that way because it's not um, legal to say, okay, this is for black and brown people. And what we've saw that out of Ohio, that is how Ohio did theirs. And Ohio's um, program got, um, got tossed out uh, at the Supreme Court level, got um, uh, found to be unconstitutional, I believe. Um, so, we do it this way, but what we found in Los Angeles is that, you know, in LA, you can have a $2 million house four blocks away from Skid Row. So we've got people, you know, the demographics did not end up being what we thought it was going to be. Um, so being able to keep in mind the way in which you guys are determining these, maybe zip codes are too big. Maybe it needs to be sub zip codes within, you know, because what they're looking at here was, um, zip codes where the highest amount of uh, cannabis arrests were made. So thinking about things like that, for our initial round, we required that people hold property, um, i.e. already have a place that was secured. Um, so sounded like an okay idea at the time, you know what ended up happening. I've been paying on a property for over 25 months and I'm not selling cannabis. So we're talking about the people who were disproportionately disenfranchised having the highest holding costs while MSOs and larger organizations are allowed to continually sell money, I mean, sell cannabis and make money building their bases and their customer base while we're drained of ours. That's a huge issue. Um, so being able to look at that and, and know uh, the issues. One of the things that we've seen that's done really well up in Oakland becomes, you know, they have a grant system and a loan system um, in place already. And that is huge because that allows um, entrepreneurs to have access to capital. 
um, early on. And without that access to capital, what we've seen, and this is, you know, we've seen in California, but across the board as predatory investors. So the way in which we set these programs up you know, might lead to to problems like this. And when I'm saying predatory investors, it's, you know, oh, uh, there's a difference between wanting and to invest in a black and brown owned business or wanting to run your own business and knowing you can't do so without a black or brown person and, and, and carrying them around like an albatross around your neck. So there's a difference with me going out and, uh, you know, looking for investors um, and pitching them on my own idea uh, or an investor who comes to someone and says, hey, you live in this disproportionately disenfranchised area. I'm going to give you $5,000 a month, Mm -hmm. you know, if you sign on to this deal. Know that if they're giving you $5,000 a month, what are they making on their side? That's not what social equity is. And so, you know, we saw the city of Los Angeles had to go back and say that the social equity person needs to be the highest ranking official within that. They need to be CEO um, or president or whatever that is because that shows that that business is actually theirs because of the other thing is that in Los Angeles, what they said was because they had 186, I believe, licenses that were already out there that the next licenses were going to be given to social equity on a two-to-one basis. So what everybody, all those investors knew that it was going to be a long time before they were able to get a clean license without a social equity person, um, which made them uh, predatory. And the the city also had to go through and come up with um, equity share agreements. So we were sure because a lot of times we saw deals that were coming through investors where they had the ability to shake out this, you know, social equity person in in three years or in five years or whatever to take their business um, to to unseat them and a bunch of other things. And so it becomes incredibly important that we're able to. to talk about these things so you guys can make better, you know, decisions in regards to the way in which you guys are, are looking at things. We're seeing things like out of Detroit. Detroit's got a lawsuit right now um, based on their hometown designation. And there's a requirement for people in this licensing um, cycle to um, be have been Detroit residents for a certain amount of time and they're getting sued. And so their process is held up. Uh, we've seen the process in Chicago and social equity held up. And, um, and issues there where um, one of the things that come to mind um, instantly is the fact that they allowed people to be able to claim social equity by hiring social equity um, uh, people who would qualify for social equity. So you could be an all white owned business, completely fully funded. But if you hire some people from the community that would be considered social equity, then you're a social equity business. That's not how none of this works. That's not how any of this works, because the idea is that we have the opportunity to build generational wealth in our communities. And really what we're doing is building wealth for these companies and they're giving us minimum wage jobs. That's that's not social. So being able to be very clear on what the ramifications of all these little things are in the ordinances um, allows people on the East Coast, as we see New Jersey come online, as we see New York come online, make better decisions, know what to advocate for um, and know where it's important for them to stand up for their rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I agree a thousand percent with everything that just came out of your mouth. It, 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 it's so spot on because you know what they always say, you need to keep the same energy, right? They spent $50 billion a year on the war on drugs. This is not leftovers. This is not the secondhand plate. We don't even want to sit at the table. We want our own table. You know, and, and if you won't give it to us, we'll build it. Play with me 100%. if you want to. Like, out of him. Out of him. That part. <laughs> now what? 
Straight up. Straight up. You feel me? <laughs> nah, that's awesome. That's so awesome. So, so um, one more question. You know, I, I think about some of the conversations we had offline is about education. And I, and I think about me and my brother, we, we speak to so many folks who want to jump headfirst in this industry, but they really don't have the proper foundation to sustain their business. So again, with us being here in Jersey, figuring this thing out, putting it all together, how are some ways we could be proactive and really steer individuals down the proper path of prosperity? So I think that the key, is, you know, when we're talking about education, there's a lot of people out there offering cannabis-based education. And the, and the first thing that I always think about is, as a person who's educating you on cannabis, have a cannabis business, full stop. Do they have a cannabis business? Because what my mother told me, and uh, it's still... Uh, brings true today is that all skin folk and kin folk um, and we've seen unfortunately um, a lot of people who are offering cannabis based education or other things that are not useful that give bad information etc etc and so you do need to make sure that the people who um, who are teaching you how to do something as something that they have actually achieved in the past um, and so that means that you do need to do your research because a lot of these companies are popping up um, overnight and we need to make sure that we're, we're listening to um, known voices in the industry. You know, there are organizations that have been a around for a long time. You've got Supernova Woman, you've got MCBA, you've got, um, you know, NCIA. All these people um, have some sort of educational component where they can teach things. I would say that you need to be really careful about um, the way in which you spend money because, because uh, people in this industry um, are considered usually that they think people have a lot of money. So you find a lot of high dollar value consultants. Oh, I'm going to get you a license. And number one, anybody who promises you a license is a damn lie. Yep. Start there because no one can promise you a license. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing um, or what have you. And also you shouldn't be spending fifty, a hundred thousand dollars on a consultant. I've seen people get get, you know, taken out by consultant fees so they can't even make it to the point in time where they can apply for things. Um, so it becomes critical that you really do your research in that regard. Um, listen to people who, I mean, and there's so many amazing free resources out there as well. I know one of my, um, you know, uh, uh, board members, Hope Wiseman just had um, a 420 experience that was um, free over 420 where she, um, uh, you know, had, I think, 30 different speakers who were talking about different aspects of, of the cannabis business. Um, you know, we Supernova has these sort of programs as well. Look to the two people who have credibility in this space and watch your pocketbook. You know, it is expensive to apply for these licenses and et cetera. But also keep in mind that everybody doesn't need a license. I entered this business uh, six years ago. I did not have a license. Apothecary didn't need a license. I made boxes um, or whatever, which means that I had a lower barrier to entry. I did not have to spend all this upfront money. Um, and I was able to get myself within the space, build the connections that I needed that now I can leverage now that I'm at the point in time of licensure. So it's useful to start getting involved in the industry. Um, in other ways. And I tell people all the time, so many folks come up to me and they're like, I want to get into cannabis. I want to be a grower. Dude, if you can't keep a fern alive, maybe growing ain't for you. How about that? That that ain't the, it's not the only path to 
success within the space, people have this narrow outside view. But if you're an educator, bring your education skills. If you're a nurse, bring your medical skills. If you're a SEO um, expert, bring that skill set. Bring your media, um, you know, knowledge. Bring your lawyer skills. Bring your bookkeeping skills. Bring your CPA ability. All those things transfer directly into the cannabis space and can find you a lot more success. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially when you're talking about new markets that are popping up, think about the number of businesses that are looking for retail, you know, retail locations right now. And maybe you're an urban planner and you have a zoning expertise or whatever. The amount of people who are going to now need a CPA who's going to be able to deal with 280E issues and a bookkeeper who can do the same and someone who is an expert in compliance and knows how to do labels and packaging, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all money-making um, endeavors that I think that people should spend more time on. At the end of the day, um, you know, in the gold rush, the people who got rich weren't the people who were looking for gold. It was the people who were selling picks, shovels, and blue jeans. Mm. So how can you sell picks, shovels, and blue jeans for this new industry? Right. And you, you were preaching the gospel right now because I've been saying that since day one, especially when this thing goes federal. Oh, Come on, now you open up the floodgates, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and that becomes a whole different thing. And it's, you know, and it, it's a continuation of being able to advocate because as excited as I am for federal legalization, I'm also scared shitless um, because of the things that, that, you know, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know how heavy the federal government comes in. We're looking at things that are coming down like the MORE Act. And I know a lot of people are excited about that. But I also have, you know, lot, lots of large concerns, you know, the MORE Act um, was written in a way that they could um, keep people with previous cannabis convictions out of the industry. Whereas in a lot of municipalities, Los Angeles included, people who have cannabis convictions have prioritization um, because of that. So we could be wiping out social equity programs across the country with a federal program that uh, that is like that. If we look at, you know, the amount of uh, federal tax dollars that are coming in. Everybody knows that we have a very thriving traditional or unregulated market. Um, in Los Angeles, we have 186 legal dispensaries. There's an estimate that there are 500 illegal dispensaries here. Um, there are more illegal dispensaries than there are Starbucks in the city of Los Angeles. And that becomes a huge issue for legal dispensary owners because at the end of the day, are you going to give me your money, if you can go down the street and buy something markedly similar for, you know, uh, $47 left, less, yep. you know, because I'm going to have to, for a $100 purchase, I'm going to have to charge you for $147. That person's going to say 100 bucks an out. Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, does that then push people further into this unregulated market? And, you know, then we have to have a conversation where, where I know lots of people in the traditional market. Um, and I love them. And I understand that it becomes really hard to transfer into this legal market. But at the same time, there are a, a lack of regulations there, i.e. do I want to have my mother, you know, using a tincture that, that was made in somebody's pot in the stove, but we don't know it's never been tested. We don't know where none of this stuff's coming from. Well, we've heard um, all sorts of stories about pesticides um, and then people putting things in unregulated plant in order to make it um, way heavier, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of concerns there um, that we need to to keep our eyes open in regards to the way the federal, uh, you know, legalization comes out. No, for sure. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's like, you know, every, every piece, right? We got to network with the right people, right? We got to take our current skill set and bring it into the industry and just be who we're supposed yeah. to be, you know what I'm saying? And you, uh -huh. and you, uh -huh. mentioned, you mentioned the part about education. You got to learn from experts. My, my brother and I, we're, we're very transparent. 
We're not education guys. We're business guys. We just went out and partnered with experts in educational fields who could teach our people how to do things that could put them in this industry and, and give them the skills they need. And that's how you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone has their skill sets. There's, you know, a skill set for for people who are in business who can bring these people together, who can get them on the right path, um, et cetera. Um, and there's a skill set of being able to bring out people from the, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast to be able to share this information and keep you guys from from having to trip down the same stairs that we did. You know, we have yet to find the, the perfect social equity program. We have yet to find these things. We've seen what works and we've seen what uh, has not worked. And unfortunately, because these things are so municipal, they're, they're city by city by city. And because they're so new, we haven't seen a lot of data uh, analytics on it. We haven't seen what works and what doesn't work. We only have things that are anecdotal or the experiences of the people who have gone through them. And I'm hoping to see more of that work done to determine what really is successful and, and what is the long play. But because these programs have been along for less than five years, we don't know what is the success rate after three years, after five years, et cetera. And that's why it's incredibly important that we continue, continue to keep our eyes on what's happening on the West Coast and transfer that information uh, you know, uh, consistently over to you guys so you can make better decisions than we did. For sure, for sure. And listen, now that we're connected, you can, you can best believe we will be in constant conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Listen, be, be, before we let you get out of here, you've been so wonderful, uh, Whitney. Before we let you get out of here, just we got we ask everybody this question before they, before they go. We got to know, what's your favorite strain of all time and why? Lamb's bread. Lamb's, Lamb's bread. bread. Lamb's okay. bread. It's good enough for Bob. It's good enough for me. It was Bob Marley's favorite strain. But I just, as someone who has anxiety, lamb's bread always does me good. It's like a massage from the inside. Um, it's it's mellow um, and it is um, necessary for a good time. And it's now it's become harder to find. So whenever I see it on a shelf, I'm definitely buying it up. <laughs> you got it. They go that lamb's bread. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So listen, um, what we, before we get out of here, how can um how can our people get in contact with you on social media? Absolutely. So you can um, check out my companies. Um, Apothecary is at www.theapothecarycase.com. That's a p o t h e c a r r y case.com. You can also check out our dispensary at www.josephineandpillies.com. You can also find us on Instagram at The Apothecary at Josephine and Billy's and me personally at The High Mommy Life um, on Instagram. And please feel free to like, follow, shoot me a DM. I'm always down to have conversations with other people who are getting into the space. I'm like, I think that the important, these conversations become even more important as you guys are moving really quickly into, into this. And I would love to see a pipeline of, of insight going back and forth um, so we can see more diversity across the board um, in this space. It's just absolutely ridiculous. The, the small amount, especially when we know that, um, you know, especially black women are prolific business starters. We start businesses at a rate higher than white women and a white men. So we want to see, you know, the, the ability to have success in a space that has, you know, an amazing um, amount of growth coming. So I'm, I'm going to tell you a secret, just, just because we really messed with you, okay? We told, <laughs> we, we told you 73% of our user base are women. 80% uh -huh. of our workforce are women. 
Hey, come through, East Coast ladies. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> now, like my, my brother and I say it all the time, man. A woman's mind is something special, and um, you know, and, and we want to again, we want to empower you, ladies, as in any way, shape, or form we can, and we want to work with you ongoing to make sure we get this right. I think that it's important, and I also think it's important that we continue to talk to um, black and brown communities because there is a sort of PTSD that's out there that makes people very reticent to come into the cannabis space. When you've seen your community being uh, torn apart by the war on drugs, when you've seen your neighbor's house get kicked in, when you've seen people not be eligible for federal funds, they can't live in public housing, they can't get food stamps, they can't get student loans or whatever because they got caught with um, some some cannabis, uh, you know, 10 years ago, that does make people very reticent to get into this space and especially when we're talking about the older generation people who you know have been prescribed a lot of opiate pain pills but you know would probably do better with a tincture um you know my my you know when you've got those older people in your family but they're you know oh i don't want to do cannabis but i'll take anything else that the doctor prescribes and especially in a community where we have historically low uh, access to health care you know we don't have the funds for a lot of things and some of these medical issues can be solved by cannabis so i think it's also you know it's a point conversation with the community even the people who are you know some people are running it and they see the opportunity here people some people are reticent but we really do need to come together as a community and realize not only that this is important that this is a big opportunity but to also put it in their mind that when these companies come online that they should be supporting black owned cannabis and they should be supporting brown owned cannabis um and the brands that they per- they buy the dispensaries that they go to mm-hmm. um you know etc and making sure that that these people are held accountable and, and having diversity within their companies. And absolutely. I mean, like that that's what the plant was built for. My brother says it all the time. Like this beautifully unique plant was put here to bring us all together. You know? And and that's yep. that's what it's gonna do. That's what it's gonna do. Yeah. Oh, listen, I believe it. No, for sure. Well thank you once again. And then there you have it everybody. You know, we want to just thank our 420 NJ events family for tuning in. Make sure you guys got your notifications on so you're ready when you drop the next episode. It's been Higher Learning with 420 NJ events podcast. Until next time, medicate responsibly. Let's go. All right, y'all. There you have it. This has been the Higher Learning with 420 NJ events podcast, where it's always 420. Did you learn something new? Did you guys find this valuable? If you did, please like, comment or subscribe. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Thanks for watching. Peace.